Welcome to the Nach Daily, a Congregation Ahavas Torah initiative. Today, we are discussing the third parak of Sefer Shoftim, which is chock full of action. It opens by telling us the Canaanite people that Hashem left in the land in order to test the faith of the Bnei Israel and teach them how to make war, how to battle. And it lists the local populations. It's worth pausing here and considering the question that we've encountered and kind of danced around and to some degree addressed, and that is, uh, did Hashem want Yehoshua's generation to complete the job or not? It seems, on the one hand, that it was an error that the previous generation did not complete driving the people of Canaan out of the land, and it's something that the people are rebuked for, for example, in the last Perek by the unnamed messenger of God, either a prophet or an angel. But here, as in other places, including in the Torah itself, uh, we're made to think that this was somehow the ideal situation, that it was meant to be slow. And the question is, can these two ideas somehow coexist? And of course, the answer is yes. Uh, And I think there's really two ways of framing it. Either you can make some sort of technical distinction between the kind of gradual process that Hashem viewed as ideal versus what the Bnei Israel actually did in executing this plan, perhaps Uh, They weren't meant to make the local peace treaties. It goes without saying that they weren't meant to intermarry and to become influenced. Uh, So you could say that when they're being chastised, they're being chastised because of the way they particularly uh, executed this plan and the flaws in their execution. But there was some ideal model of leaving in the the Canaanite populations to test the Bnei Israel, and so there wouldn't be uh, too much wilderness and, and barrenness as discussed in the Torah and then wild animals would overrun the land, etc. So that's one kind of uh, way of dealing with what seems to be an out-and-out contradiction, some technical distinction. Alternatively, you could say something more abstract that I I haven't fully worked out, but something to the effect of uh, Hashem both wanted them to drive out all the Canaanites uh, and, and Hashem also wanted them to remain. Because Hashem is infinite and we don't understand his ways. And sometimes the text is focusing on our failure to live up to certain ideals. And, and that's when the Torah is chastising, when the, when the uh, Sefer, uh, whether it's Shoftim or Yehoshua, is chastising the Bnei Israel for their failure. And sometimes the text is focusing on the benefits of the situation and the things that were in some respect ideal in the eyes of Hashem. And that was for it to be a slower process, one that tests the Bnei Israel, and one that... Uh, enables the Bnei Israel to learn how to make war. So it's a, it's a complicated question, one that is worth considering. I leave you to think about it. Let's move on. We learn the Bnei Israel dwell among and intermarry with the local Canaanite populations, and then they stray from Hashem, a pattern that we're already expecting. I'll note here, I'll just take a, a little bit of a sidebar, the the Canaanite deities that we encounter are Baal and Ashtoret. There are others, but those are the primary ones that we're going to encounter. They were enumerated explicitly in the in the parak yesterday. I just want to, just so everyone understands, Baal is the storm god. It's the the god that's uh, responsible for rain in the uh, in the pantheon of the of the Canaanite uh, religion, um, and he's actually like the head of the Canaanite pantheon because, of course, rain and and the weather is so critical in the eyes of a Canaanite population, because as we know, Israel relies heavily on rain. And Ashtoret is the goddess of fertility, is the consort of Baal. They they go together. Um, And uh, obviously, fertility is is, uh, universally important. 
Um, but I just wanted to give that little bit of context so, so you understand what is Baal, what is Ashtoret. Sometimes the term Baal is used as a kind of catch-all for all deities and not, a, not in its proper specific um, uh, usage re- relating to the storm god. Okay. As a result of B'nai Israel intermarrying and, and being led astray by the Canaanite population, uh, they go down a, a, sin, a sinful path, and so Hashem punishes them by sending Kushan Rishatayim from Aram Naharayim, who subjugates the people. Aram Naharayim, where exactly that is, so some associate Naharayim with the Tigris and the Euphrates, others disagree, but it's kind of broadly in that region, um, not usually consequential to us right now. So the people cry out to Hashem, who sends a shofate. Send, Hashem sends Adniel ben Kenaz. Adniel ben Kenaz succeeds in driving out the oppressors and delivers 40 years of quiet uh, to the, to the Bnei Israel and to the land. So it's a, quite a successful tenure. Once again, after that, the people slip into sin and follow uh, other gods. And so Hashem sends Eglon, the king of of Moab, together with Ammon, who are a related people, both living on the, roughly speaking, the eastern side of the Dead Sea, uh, and together with Amalek, who's a, a nomadic people who live in, uh, in the Negev and elsewhere, um, they conquer Ir Hatmarim, which we know by its other name, and that is Yericho. They conquer Yericho. So they must enter the land, right? If they're living by the Dead Sea, it makes sense they'd enter the land kind of near to where the Bnei Israel entered the land. They capture the strategic city of Yericho, and from there seem to assert some control over, over the region. Uh, and, and it should be noted that Yericho is in the tribe of Binyamin, and they stay there. Uh, this uh, Eglon rules there, uh, has some sway in the region for 18 years, until again the people call out to Hashem, and Hashem sends them now Ehud ben Gera. Ehud is from the tribe of Binyamin, and he undertakes uh, a pretty daring mission. He goes to Eglon under the pretense of bearing a gift and tribute to, uh, to the king. And he tells Eglon that he has some secret that he wants to give it to, uh, to share with him in private. And so they go off to a private area. And there Ehud stabs Eglon in what is... Uh, likely supposed to be a kind of comical scene where Eglon, uh, he's obviously a very heavy fellow, and, and the, uh, the Navi goes into some length describing how the blade and the handle both go into his stomach, and then the fat kind of oozes out. So it's, uh, I think it's meant to be a little bit comical. His name is Eglon, which is related to the word Egel, like a fattened cow, and he's a heavy person. There's other interesting things going on in terms of names, I'll just note Ehud is Ish Yemini, Yemini, right, right-handed. And of course, he is distinguished for being a lefty. Um, Yemini there, though, means from the tribe of Binyamin. But it's all, all these interesting plays on words, which adds a kind of comical dimension to the, to the Perak. Uh, maybe a lighthearted, I'm not, I'm not sure the, the proper word, but I think you got the point. Fine. So Ehud gets away after killing, killing the king and, uh, and having handicapped the, the, the Moabites, he, uh, with their kind of lack of leadership, so Ehud rallies the men of Ephraim to go and they drive out Moab from the land and then there is quiet for 80 years. And then as a postscript, we learn about this individual named Shamgar ben Anat, who is also successful in killing 60 plishtim. We'll talk more at length about who the plishtim are uh, on another, on another occasion. But that is, uh, that's the very end. It's the last pasuk relates to Shamgar ben Anat and that's the end of our parak and the, the narrative. Here are a few questions worth considering as we think about these three shoftim. 
Firstly, where are they from? Who is fighting with them? And what is their religious impact on the nation? Adniel is from Yehuda, kind of an ideal leader. He has pedigree and a proven track record. We've heard about him in Sefer Yoshua and again in Sefer Shoftim in terms of conquering the land uh, near Hebron and, and ridding it of giants. And we're told uh, that he um, fights uh, to drive out uh, Kushan Rishatayim, but we're not told who, who gathers with him. It seems like it's all of Israel. He seems to have broad influence. We're not told that it's just the tribe of Yehuda. It seems like everyone is following him. And we're also told that he is in, inspired by the, the Spirit of God. He is animated by the Spirit of Hashem. And we're told by Yishpot at Israel, which could mean different things, but it seems to lend some religious heft to his leadership, that he has some sort of religious impact on the people. Contrast that with Ehud. Ehud is from Binyamin, so he's from a tribe that is kind of most impacted by the incursion of Moab, right, because they're in Yericho, so that's in Binyamin, so he's responding to a local issue, and he seems to only rally the people of Ephraim to his cause in fighting uh, the people of Moab, Ephraim being a natural ally because they're neighbors of Binyamin. So they would have been threatened by this incursion as well. Plus, we know that Binyamin and Ephraim are both children, or in the case of Ephraim, of Ephraim, a grandchild of Rachel. So they're kind of both on the same team. So it's clear that Ehud, for all of his heroics, is a much more regional, limited leader with a narrower sphere of influence. In addition to that, we're not told that uh, the, the spirit of Hashem rested upon him. Uh, and we're not told by Yishpot at Yisrael. And the Malbim notes this and, and says that it's because he, he doesn't have the same religious impact that O'Neill had. His, his impact is really uh, in, in, uh, a military, in military terms only. And then, uh, after that, we find this kind of bare sketch of Shamgar, who, firstly, we don't know his tribe at all. It's not, not mentioned. There are traditions about uh, who he is associated with, but the text doesn't tell it to us. Uh, and he seems to be kind of a vigilante. He's working w- without the support of anyone else. So even his military influence is, is quite narrow. And it's not clear if he has any religious influence on the Israelite population altogether. So the Perek, putting this all together, is structured, not surprisingly, <laughs> for Shoftim in a downward tilt. We start off with an ideal Shofet in Adniel, almost a, a logical heir to Yehoshua, as some Midrashim uh, make it out to be. When, one, when the sun sets, uh, the next one rises. Um, and that's referring to Yahushua and then Adniel. So it's, it's, he's kind of this ideal Shofet. Uh, and fittingly, he's from the tribe of Yehuda, And he seems to have a far-reaching influence, almost a unifying influence and a religious influence on the people of Israel. Then we get Ehud. Ehud is from Binyamin, clearly just a regional military leader, uh, perhaps a little, uh, perhaps little uh, or no religious impact on the people. That's subject to, to further analysis, but it doesn't seem like he has the same religious influence on the people of, uh, uh, of Israel. And then finally, Shamgar, who is basically a one-man army uh, with an ad hoc weapon. So clearly the most limited in terms of his scope of even military influence. So the Perek features three um, effective shoftim, but they are effective to different degrees and in different ways, and we have to be sensitive to those differences. That's it for today. Chazak ve'amatz and happy learning.